So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Acts chapter 2. Uh, if you're new around here, let me tell you where we're at. We're studying through the book of Acts this year. We started on uh, early in January, and we've just been working our way through the book. Uh, we've made it to Acts chapter 2, and then we stopped in Acts chapter 2, 14. We're in a little series right now called But Peter. And what we're doing is just acknowledging how incredible it is that it is Peter who preaches on the opening day of the, of the Christian faith or the Christian church. And we see that sermon right in Acts chapter 2, um, beginning, I believe it is, in, in verse 14. Uh, and, and then Peter starts preaching. Uh, and at the end of it, 3,000 people are added to the church that day. They repent, they believe, and they are baptized. And so we're stopping and just acknowledging again how incredible it is that it is Peter who is the one doing this. And so we're looking at some traits that we find in Peter. Ultimately, not to emulate Peter, but to learn how God worked through him so that God might work through us in a similar way so that we can play our part in the church that Jesus came to plant. The first trait we saw in Peter was resilience. The second trait was that he was trained. And uh, this week and last week, we talked about a third trait, which that he was filled with the Spirit. Now, this phrase, filled with the Spirit, has meant a, a, a lot and a lot of different things to people over the, the years of the church. And when I say that, I don't just mean our church. I mean 2,000 years of the church. And what we're doing is we're explaining some of the myths uh, that have uh, been created around this idea of being filled with the Spirit. And so last week I addressed two of those myths. The first one was that being filled with the Spirit is just a one-time occurrence. Uh, rather, like Paul instructs in Ephesians 5, being filled with the Spirit is an ongoing or a repeated occurrence. A, a, being filled with the Spirit is a, a, an empowering or an anointing for either a particular moment in time or the particular utilization of a spiritual gift. We'll talk more about that term this morning, spiritual gift. Myth number two is that being filled with the Spirit is just for the, the holy spiritual elite. Uh, rather, the truth is that being filled with the Spirit, as we looked at last week, is for all people, all ages, all types, and, uh, and so that means all of us. This morning, I want to look at myth number three. Myth number three is this, that being filled with the Spirit means and only means or must mean that uh, the individual filled with the Spirit speaks in tongues or prophesies or uses the gift of prophecy. We see this addressed in, uh, all throughout the New Testament, particularly in 1 Corinthians 12, and so we'll look at that a little bit, and 1 Corinthians 14. But here's the idea. To be filled with the Spirit, the evidence of that means you must speak in tongues or you must utilize the gift of prophecy. Now, this particular myth, by the way, I'm going to say then, the, the, the truth is that being filled with the Spirit means utilization of spiritual gifts, but does not demand that it be those particular spiritual gifts. Now, as a church, we say that we are a post post-denominational church. If you're unfamiliar with the term post-denominational, that's okay. We kind of made it up. Uh, and I know it's used in other places, but from our context, we hadn't heard the term before, so we started utilizing it. And here's what we mean by it, that we are going to unify around core doctrine core doctrine. And so we have eight statements. If you're curious about those, we can email out the statements of faith to you. Uh, and they're eight statements, but they really encompass about 30 or 40 um, uh, significant doctrines of the Christian faith. We have a stated belief about the Holy Spirit. Uh, it says something to this effect, uh, that we believe in the, that the Holy Spirit is our comforter, that he guides us into all truth, that he empowers us with spiritual gifts in order to use for the building of God's church. 
Now that statement right there that I just read or stated, most of you, actually I hope everybody would nod their head and go, absolutely, I agree with that statement. So what's the problem? Well, the problem and the problem that has existed in the church for a very long time, 1,500 years or so, is the statement he has equipped us or empowered us with spiritual gifts. See, almost every Christian, every Christian that I would say is uh, of doctrinal soundness would nod their head with that statement. But then some questions would begin to emerge when, it's, when you say spiritual gifts, uh, half of, the, uh, of Christendom would say, yes, and these are all of the gifts. And the other half would say, yes, and these are all of the gifts except a couple of them. That's where the problem comes underneath. Now, this morning, what I want to do is I want to address this issue so that we can have proper understanding of it as a church, so that you can have proper understanding of it as an individual. And I want to do so while still standing firmly in our stated value that we are a post-denominational church, that what we are trying to do is we are trying to unify around core doctrine and not split as the church has done so often in what we would term or label secondary doctrines. Now, if you're wondering, like, what are some of those first or primary doctrines? Well, one of them is we believe the Bible. We believe it's as relevant today as the day that it was written, that it is inspired by God. We believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. We believe in the Trinitarian nature of God, right? These are just a couple of those examples. Now, when it particularly comes to this utilization of spiritual gifts, there are two camps that have emerged. Let me tell you about them. Camp number one is the cessationist camp. By the way, this morning is going to be a little bit more teaching than preaching. The, the camp number one is the cessationist camp. Now, the cessationist camp would say this, that um, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, are present, but a few of them, in particular, the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy, ceased after the apostolic age. So when all of these original apostles died out, the gifts, uh, these particular gifts stopped. They ceased. Cessationist, okay? Cessationist meaning to cease or to stop. There are some very famous Christians in this camp. Some that I read on a very consistent basis, and I would say are some of my like personal like mentors in the faith. Um, John Owen, uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards. These are not lightweight doctrinal people. John Kelvin, right? These are famous Christians, famous preachers, people who God has used to usher in revival, people that God has used to build and to grow his church. Billy Graham, heard of him? They, these guys, would fall into this camp, the cessationist camp. They love the Bible. They believe in the Bible. They, they hold it to be absolutely fully true, but have arrived at a different conclusion in this particular area. The other camp, then, is the continuationist camp. The continuationist camp simply believes that the gifts, all of them, continue on to this day, that they did not cease as the other camp believes. Now, I'm not going to get into all of the reasons on uh, the difference between the continuationist and the cessationist and how it is that they arrive at their different conclusions this morning, there are some things that you could read that would probably help you in understanding that more thoroughly. But instead, what I want to do is talk about how a post-denominational church operates understanding that there is both cessationism and continuationism. Let me... Um, and then also how that applies to our church. Now, we won't do this with show of hands today because some of you probably don't know, but... I would say this, probably 50 to 70% of our church, 
This is not based on like me, like looking at you guys and how you worship. Okay, this is just based on like a general kind of feel that I would say that 50 to 70% of our church probably came out of a cessationist background either by practice so maybe not, but by all intents and purposes, yes, came out of a cessationist background either by practice or by doctrine. I would say then that 30 to 50% of our church came out of a continuation background, though in more recent years or more recent decades, though they were uh, on continuation by doctrine, weren't necessarily continuation by practice. I would say then there's probably a 10% on, uh, in our church uh, in that, obviously I'm not doing more math than higher than 100, 10% of that 100% that I've already discussed, 10% is probably in a very stark, like we are cessationists, and 10% are probably in a very stark, we are continuationists. So that's the makeup of our post-denominational church. This is my best guess and conjecture. Right? And so within that then, it is imperative that if we continue to desire to be the church that Jesus came to plant, that we figure out how to operate and to have conversations around these particular things. This morning, I was joking to our production team, I said, all we're trying to do is solve a 500-year problem in 30 minutes. Cool? We can do this. There's a couple of texts that will be really helpful for us in this. I want to start in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's start there. I'm going to start in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. That is why, uh, by the way, this particular verse is one of the reasons why you often hear me say, God, would you speak to us both individually and corporately? That there is both an individual nature to our faith, but a corporate nature of our faith. This is a verse that, that proves that. And God is appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Now, this is not the only list of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. We also see it in 1 Peter. Uh, we see a little bit of it in Ephesians. Uh, and then Paul has another list in Romans. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the term spiritual gifts, I'm going to hit that in a second to help you understand. Paul then goes on to ask a bunch of questions. The inferred answer to the question is no. Are all apostles? No. It's not in your Bible, but that's the inference of the question. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts? And then Paul goes on to say, and I will show you still a more excellent way. Now, if you're familiar with the scriptures, we just wrapped up 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Many of us, because we've gone to weddings, know what is next. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As I said before, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is not a list of how to get married well. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is predominantly how to utilize spiritual gifts well. Now, we can apply some of the principles over uh, to marriage and to other ideas of love. If, you're, if you're not following me, 1 Corinthians 13 is that famous love chapter often quoted at weddings, but in its context was actually used to describe how the church interacts one with another in the proper utilization of spiritual gifts. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter uh, talks about spiritual gifts, and then when he gets to the end of his discussion on spiritual gifts, he says, and now serve one another well. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit and then operating in the, in the Holy Spirit and utilizing gifts, and then at the end of it, he says, 
and now submit one to another. The point that all of the authors, when they're talking about these, are trying to make is that how you properly use uh, spiritual gifts is with love and humility. That you use these gifts in order to serve one another. Now, uh, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, right at the beginning, it talks more thoroughly uh, about spiritual gifts in general. And so maybe you grew up in a church environment, uh, I'm sure some of you did, where you never even heard the term spiritual gifts. And you're wondering, what does that even mean? This is not some, uh, the idea of spiritual gifts is not some like secondary thing. Uh, it's not something that we can forget about. In fact, the more you understand it, you see, it is exactly how God has equipped his church in order for it to accomplish what God wants it to accomplish. Uh, I could go even further and say that the church is never what it is supposed to be until every person within the church is operating in the fullness of their gifting. Let's look at these. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts. Paul says this, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. If Paul thought it was important that we would be informed in this matter, then it is also important for us to be informed in this way. He says, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. We would answer the question, how does God empower everyone in those gifts? We would say through the filling of the Holy Spirit, where you are empowered with a particular gift or a particular time or the combination of those two things. Verse 7, to each, each follower of Christ, is given the manifestation of the Spirit, the proper utilization of a spiritual gift for what? For the common good. Back to our myth. The myth is that um, being filled with the Spirit means you must or you have to um, express that in speaking in tongues or prophesying. What we're saying is no, being filled with the Spirit plays itself out in many different gifts, many different varieties, uh, and many different activities and services, just like explained right here. That being filled with the Spirit, uh, there are many gifts that can express being filled with the Spirit. Now, in this short little passage, we see Paul's quick little doctrine around spiritual gifts. And here's what Paul is in essence saying. He's saying spiritual gifts are for everyone who is a follower of Christ and a part of the church body. And that they are given by the Holy Spirit uh, in order, or actually by Christ through the Holy Spirit. They're given in order for four things. Four things. Here are the four things that we are given spiritual gifts for. Number one, the edification of the church or the building up of the church from like within. Number two, for the unification of the church, the unification of the body, like, uh, like a body needing all of its parts to work in its full and proper function. It, 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 the whole one Holy Spirit unifies the body and brings in all of the gifts that a particular body needs to accomplish what God would have it accomplish. So edification, unification. Number three, for expansion, that the kingdom of God through his church would expand and grow. And then number four, through the expression of love. So these four things, edification, 
unification, expansion, and expression of love. These four reasons, right, or these are the four things uh, that are to be the outcomes of the utilization of a spiritual gift. Let me say this again. This is not just the talk of what I'm doing here of, uh, of Pentecostal or charismatic churches. What we're talking about thus far, right, should be present in every single church because this is how God laid out his church. We say around here all the time, we want to be the church that Jesus came to plant. His ways, his rules, right? Or his rules, his ways. And this is his way. How does he grow his church? By giving people spiritual gifts. And there's many uh, that we read there. There's other gifts like teaching and service and generosity and hospitality, right? These are spiritual gifts that you and I have been given for those four reasons. Now, when we utilize gifts in those four ways, it's good. It's good. When we don't utilize gifts in those four ways, or when they don't produce those four things, we're actually probably operating more in the flesh than we are in the spirit, because the reason the gifts were given were for those four things. Further evidence of this, we go all the way back to our very first memory verse of the year. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We set this up a long time ago now, a couple months, well, not that long, five months ago. We set this idea up knowing that we would get here eventually that the purpose, uh, the original and purpose of the Holy Spirit coming was what? Was to empower us as followers of Christ to what? To be witnesses. That the, the reason the Holy Spirit came and empowered the church wasn't for the personal satisfaction of the saints, but was instead for the idea of being effective witnesses for Christ through his church and on our own that we would be empowered in order to expand the gospel through his church. Okay. In some ways, this has all been set up. Now, where do we go from here? There are two traps. Two traps. Oh, okay. Actually, let me take a step back. You might be asking that already. Okay, so Stephen, are you a cessationist or a continuationist? Which one are you? Well, it's kind of easy, because if I was a cessationist, this conversation would have been much shorter, right? Much shorter, much quicker conversation. So clearly, I'm a continuationist. If you've been paying attention in the last couple of weeks, you would realize that, right? Um, but although I am a continuationist, being a post-denominational church, I am exceptionally comfortable worshiping next to you cessationists. Okay. We don't have a litmus test. It's not like, okay, that person wants to be involved in our church. Okay, and I know we say we're post-denominational, but really under the radar, let's make sure that they agree with us on this. No, no, no. If we believe our value, what we're saying is, we're not going to divide over this. And so someone say, well, what's the church's official stated position? Yep. That's it. What's our official stated position? I already shared it with you at the beginning. Somebody might say this. Isn't that a bit idealistic? I would rather err on the side of idealism than continue on the path of division. Okay? Would much rather do that. Somebody would say, where is this being done? I don't know. Maybe you would say, I've never seen that before. I've never seen these people get along before. You know what we also haven't seen? Unity in the church. 
So let's try something new. Now, how do we go about doing this? There's two traps, two traps that people can fall into, okay? Trap number one is this. Well, those gifts make me uncomfortable. Those gifts make me uncomfortable. Show of hands would be really fun this morning, but we're not going to do it. (laughs) Now, first, let me just ask this question. Is a lack of comfort ever a good reason, biblically, not to believe or do something. Rarely, right? It is not comfortable to tell somebody they're in sin. It is not comfortable to carry your cross and lay down your life. It is not comfortable to stand against the tide of anti-Christian beliefs and everything else going on in our world. So lack of comfort is not alone a suitable reason to dismiss something. Now within that, I think one of the things that is helpful is that we can actually go back to the beginning and ask ourselves the question, why did this divide begin in the first place? And it most predominantly began to emerge about 400 to 500 AD, somewhere in that time frame. And within that, we learn a couple of things that led to the division in the first place. By the way, we also have to acknowledge that most of us adhere to the beliefs that we do because of a denomination that emerged somewhere within the last 100 to 300 years. When we follow a faith, that book was written 2,000 years ago. And so we want to go back a little bit. Now, early on, when this division first began to emerge, right? I'm going to tell you, by the way, at the end, why I think all of this is important. But when we, when we look back, right, and we see why the division first began to emerge in the idea of this makes me uncomfortable, we see three things that were happening. And I think these three things have been happening for 1,500 years since that particular moment. And these three things, I can say that even as, right, uh, even as a continuationist, I can say these three things make me uncomfortable, And so what I'm trying to do here is show you that I believe there is some some middle ground here for us to understand one another's perspective. I also think there might be a lot of you, again, who you're you're like a I don't knowist, right? Not one of the others. And you're probably here going, okay, I I, want to do all that the scripture instructs, right? And and I want to walk in the fullness of the spirit, but I want to understand where some of this uh, um, division came from, right? Because by understanding it, it can help us stop it. So so here are the three things that began to emerge, right? The the first one was this, that people began, right, to um, elevate certain gifts, right, over other gifts. Began to elevate certain gifts over other gifts. In particular, people began to elevate the gifts of the uh, of tongues or the gifts of prophecy over all of the other gifts. And what it did is kind of created a dynamic of second-class citizenship. Ah, you're a Christian. Uh, okay, yes, you're this, but you're not spirit-filled like we're spirit-filled, and so therefore you are second-class. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Paul then goes on to say that out of the filling of the Spirit to sing songs, sing psalms, sing spiritual songs. It's, it's really actually a beautiful passage on worship. Uh, and it says, so be filled with the Spirit. And then it says, now go operate in this way through singing. Let me give you an example here. 
I've been doing ministry for 16 years. I grew up in the church and outside of a six month period, I've pretty much been in it my whole life. I know I am very biased, but the most spirit filled worship leader I've ever met and been around is my wife. She's incredible. And, and it's not just talent and it's not just this. There's just a sense that when she begins to sing, when she begins to play of the spirit of God being present there. Many of you have sensed it or felt it. For years, in her late teens and her early 20s, Lindsay struggled deeply with the question of, am I filled with the Spirit? Why? Because she had never and has not to this day spoken or prayed in tongues. And so she wrestled with this feeling the weight of, um, uh, uh, of what I need to do or what she needs to do to prove herself, to, uh, um, to desire something, and hasn't at that point and, hadn't, and hasn't to this point ever prayed or spoken in tongues. But it is clear, at least it is to me, that she's filled with the Spirit when she leads worship. You see how damaging this is? see how potentially and why this could be potentially divisive? That instead of looking at somebody who's clearly filled with the Spirit and saying, I celebrate what God does through you and in you and how he is using um, a particular gift inside of you uh, and, and bringing unification and edification and expansion and expression, instead of doing that to look and say, ah, but I wonder what it would be like if you were really, if you were really filled with the Spirit. How damaging this can be. My dad always tells this story. Uh, he went to Bible college, and he says his freshman year at Bible college, somebody came up to him and said, just imagine how effective Billy Graham would be if he was filled with the Spirit. Wow! The arrogance. The pride. Being filled with the Spirit expresses itself through all of the gifts and that, that elevation of certain ones over other ones is in part what led to division. And I think for some, when you would say, this makes me uncomfortable, well, yeah, creating this tiered system, I can see that should make us uncomfortable. Here's the, the second one. People began, and this was the one that we particularly saw about 400, 580 in that time period, is that people began to elevate personal interpretation over biblical truth. People began to elevate personal interpretation over biblical truth. And so there was a lot of this. God told me. Can I say, most cults have started with those words. God told me. The entire Mormon faith. God told me in a vision. Many of the cults have started from that phrase. God told me. And what it is, is this special revelation that people receive that they begin to elevate then actually over the truth of Scripture. This is actually quite rampant in our current day and should, be, uh, should give us grave concern, right? And what people begin to do is they say, well, I was praying in tongues or I heard from God and God told me. And then what comes out of them is a statement that is now over the Scriptures, People say, this makes me uncomfortable. Oh, this makes me very uncomfortable. What does this mean, by the way? Uh, it, 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 what I am not saying is that God does not speak to us. I believe he does. I believe through his Holy Spirit. I believe through his written word that he does indeed speak to his, uh, to his, uh, to his people. 
Uh, in fact, I've stood up here a few times on stage and I have told you that times in prayer uh, that I have uh, um, like said, God, uh, like, like I'm pretty confident. I always say I'm pretty confident, right? That God told me this, right? And then I've communicated that to you guys, right? Something that was personal for me. Here's where it often becomes damaging within the body of a church. Somebody will approach somebody else and we can create very abusive environments when certain people who think they're at an elevated spiritual position run around saying, God told me and look at other people and then use what they think God told them as almost like a weapon against other people. This is very unhealthy can be very abusive. You can create, uh, again, like almost like spiritually abusive environments. Now, do I believe that God can prompt something in someone's heart to go do or instruct or encourage somebody else with? I absolutely do. I think he can. I, can't, I think there can be a proper utilization of this. How I do this in my own life often is I go to people and I say, hey, listen, I was praying and this thought or idea came to me and I want to submit it to you to pray and I want you to open up the word of God and test what I have spoken to you this morning. Um, but I just, I want you to know that, 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 that when I was in prayer and when I was reading scripture, I sensed God saying this about you to me. But I want you to test this. Because I don't want to be a voice in your life 10 years later that you look back and say, Stephen beat me over the head with this statement and it turned out to be absolutely wrong. I tell you, I've had people in my life come up to me and say, this, 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 and this. And times I look back and I go, wow, that was spot on. And I've had other times where people have said this, 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 and this. And I've looked back now and say, that was way wrong. So how do we do that? Well, first off, the scripture tells us to discern the spirits. But even more importantly, what we must always do is take everything back to scripture. Revelation says, don't add to the words. Take everything back to scripture. Does God speak to us? Yes, he does. How? Through his word, through prayer right? And then we must be careful. We must wield that carefully then, particularly if it is us communicating it to somebody else. Now, are there proper ways to do this? I shared this with you guys a couple of weeks ago. There was a worship night that we had where I got up, I prayed, I walked off stage, and I thought to myself, what was that? And then somebody else came up to me later and said, that was a, prof that was a gift of prophecy. And I said, I didn't even know I could do that. And in that moment, right? And I've even gone back and listened. Like, okay, no, that was, like, nothing came out that was heretical. Like, no, all of this, right? And there are things in there. So is, can this be proper? Yes. Can this be used to edify, unify, expand, and express? Yes. Can it also be used to do all of the opposite of those things? Yes. Number three. Third thing that began to happen, okay, is that people began to elevate their personal satisfaction over the eternal purpose of God's church. People began to elevate their personal satisfaction over the eternal purpose of God's church. This is predominantly what is happening in 1 Corinthians 14. Paul says, I speak in gifts more than anybody, but I would rather, or speak in tongues, uh, but I would rather say five words in uh, plain language uh, than I would uh, uh, 10,000 words in tongues that no one can understand. 
What's Paul saying here? He's saying, I will surrender my right. I will surrender the utilization of this for the good of the church. I will, I will, uh, for those four reasons that I just laid out. Uh, and we've seen this throughout years. We've seen this in, uh, maybe in church expressions that you grew up in, where people begin to elevate their own personal experiential moment of worship, right, over the eternal purpose of the church, edification, unification, expansion, and expression. And so people began to be uncomfortable, not because somebody was utilizing their gift, but because there was a sense that the gift was being utilized for self-gratification and not for church edification. And I would say that when any gift operates in such a way that it isn't edifying, unifying, expanding, and expressive of love, then it is for self-gratification in those particular moments. So then what do we do? Well, we submit to the scriptures on how it tells us to operate within even these gifts. And so we always go back to say, okay, hold on. Maybe that gift is, uh, and obviously I told you I'm a continuationist, like I believe the gift is valid. By the way, when we get into this whole cessationist and continuation debate, one of the things that's interesting is we have to stop and take ourselves out of our current American context. Go to the growing church in Africa or the Middle East right now where they're being persecuted or Eastern Asia and ask them the question, are you a cessationist? They would laugh like that. They'd say, Wait, what do you mean? Do you think that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, prophecy, visions, healing, and miracles have stopped? And they would say, that's our lifeblood. That's how we get everything done. Let me tell you a story about somebody who, uh, who had just barely heard the truth of Scripture and, and, and woke up right now and, uh, and in a dream gave themselves over to Christ. Uh, uh, let me tell you about uh, going into Africa and, uh, and facing demonic warfare uh, and then the gifts of the Holy Spirit just flowing out and, and chasing evil away. A cessationist? What? In fact, uh, one of a uh, famous pastor, a guy by the name of John Piper, who's uh, in the Reformed theological camp, which would tend to be cessationist, wrote an article about how, though all of the fathers of the faith from the last 200 to 300 years um, were intended to be cessationist, how he himself, though he agrees with them and has learned much from them, is actually a continuationist because of what he has seen expressed around the world and how the Spirit moves in the places of great need. Now with all of this then, let's get moving. Trap number two. Trap number two, okay? Uh, sorry, trap number one was these gifts make me uncomfortable. What I'm trying to do to those of you who might be cessationists is to get you to evaluate why and maybe the things that have made you uncomfortable are actually things that should make you uncomfortable, but the proper utilization of them shouldn't make you uncomfortable. They should edify, unify, expand, and express. Trap number two is this. Well, these gifts are higher or better. This then be, it tends to be a trap that a, a cessationist, or I'm sorry, a continuationist might find themselves in, right? When they look and they say, well, these are the best gifts. These are the higher gifts. These are the more important gifts. Said another way, more practically, these are the gifts that really indicate whether or not the Spirit of God is moving. And, and a church really isn't spirit-filled unless these gifts are being used in a corporate setting. These gifts are higher. These gifts are better. Let me do a little thought experiment with you guys. 
What is more spirit-filled? Because in the 2000s, we saw a lot of shakeup in the, in the church, right? From a nation, national perspective, right? What's more spirit-filled? The, the, the seeker-sensitive church of the early 2000s that would often say to people, don't raise your hands in worship. It'll make people uncomfortable. And then goes on to experience hundreds or thousands of baptisms. Or what's more spirit-filled? The church that utilizes the gift of speaking in tongues, the gift of prophecy every single week, week in after week, and sees no convert in a decade. But talks of revival. Prays for it fervently. Yells about it from the pulpit. Which is more spirit-filled? Now, over the last 15 years, many people would say, oh, the first one, they can't be spirit-filled. They're grieving the Holy Spirit by telling people not to raise their hands in worship. Or could it be that in that particular moment, discerning from the Spirit, they were actually utilizing other gifts like administration, which was listed in 1 Corinthians, leadership, which is listed in Romans, generosity, uh, service, hospitality, and teaching. And God was saying, I'm going to use these gifts right now in this particular season and being spirit-filled is walking in the fullness of these gifts. And then results come. And by the way, if people say, yes, but that movement didn't actually produce any real converts, I always joke. It produced me, and I'm not trying to elevate myself, I'm just saying, like, hopefully I'm at least one. And I would say there are, there are many more out there. See, this is the trap we fall into. This is the trap that the church can fall into. So instead then, instead of focusing in on this, instead of focusing in on, uh, okay, are you spirit-filled? You're not really spirit-filled. Uh, I'm sure the gifts of tongues and prophecy still be in play. Maybe they're irrelevant in American church, right? Some people have suggested that. Other people who were cessationists have now begun to say, well, God can still do whatever he wants, and I don't believe that God has changed, so maybe he can or will use them again. How do we walk through this in such a way that is those four things, edifying, unifying, expansive, and express it. How do we walk through that? I want to give you uh, a couple of suggestions of other places that I think we ought to look for the filling of God's Spirit rather than just, are they speaking in tongues or are, uh, or is there the gift of prophecy? I want to give you a couple of other suggestions that to me indicate that the, the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit is filling a place. I think we see all of these all throughout the book of Acts. I'll be relatively quick with them this morning. And I think that we're seeing all four of these present here in our church now. Number one is boldness. Boldness. The, the idea that, that there is now a, a, a new boldness that is taking over you, a boldness to stand for truth, uh, a boldness to share your faith, uh, a boldness to not give in to all of the pressures of the world right now, but to, uh, but to hold on, uh, and not just to hold on, right, but to also stand up and to stand out. This is the filling of God. Let me give you another one. Insight. 
Peter one time makes this incredibly insightful doctrinal statement and Jesus goes, ah, Peter, it was not flesh and blood that gave you that, but it was the Father, uh, an indication that our insight comes from something outside of us post uh, the uh, ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. We know, excuse me, we know that insight now comes from the Holy Spirit in our life. And so when you begin to read the scriptures, when you begin to hear things and go, I've never heard it like that before. I've never seen it in like that before. That is the presence of the filling of God. That is the Spirit of God beginning to work. I know in some of the baptism stories tonight, you're going to hear people say things like, I, 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 I had heard things, but I hadn't heard it that way yet. I, I had seen things, but I hadn't seen it that way yet. I started to read, and it was like jumping off the page. This is the presence of the Spirit of God beginning to move and a filling of the Spirit in our church. And a third one uh, would be this, healing healing. And I don't just mean physical healing that we have seen that. I mean healing in the sense of like I was hurting. Uh, I had given up. Uh, I was searching for uh, a community. I was searching, uh, Psalms 107 says, for a city to dwell in. Uh, and then I found myself. You found yourself here. Uh, and this is just like healing has begun to just consume my heart. And, uh, and, and it's begun to rile me back up again in the right ways for the kingdom of God. It's, it's motivating me again. I, I sense there's a healing that's going on. Some of you, the healing of a hurt that took place over a decade ago or two decades ago or whatever it might be, right? And you're just like sensing God is like restoring you. This is the presence of the Spirit of God. Number, another one would be simple unity. Through even the laughter this morning uh, and by what I laid out earlier in those numbers, right? The, the unification of a church that is looking and desiring to ask the question, what does it look like to operate in the full spectrum of spiritual gifts? Let me tell you about Ed. Ed's one of my, uh, Ed's a poster boy for post-denominational, Okay. Some of you know Ed. Ed is uh, in his early 70s. He was a, a Baptist preacher for 50 years, okay? Now calls redemption his home church. Most of you know Ed because he runs around talking to everybody, okay? Can't turn it off. Ned, who's a, uh, again, was in ministry for 50 years in the Baptist denomination, right? Um, I had lunch with earlier this week, and I was asking him about this whole, like, you know, post-denominational thing. Right now, here's, here's the deal. Before I ever knew Ed's answer to the question, uh, is he a cessationist or a continuationist? Here's what I definitely knew about Ed. That man is filled with the Spirit of God. You can tell in the way he talks. You can tell in the way he connects. You can tell in the way he loves people. You can tell in the way that, uh, that he can meet somebody and have an influence with them. It is the Spirit of God moving through. Now, I could go on to have the conversation, Ed, are you a this or a that? But I can also go on to say, I've got much bigger problems. The world has much bigger problems. There are much greater things that the world is facing right now than the answer to the, are you a this or you are a that? And what I can do is look at Ed and say, Ed, you have the spirit of God. And I want to see God use all of who you are in the building of his church. And that you... As a, as a Baptist preacher for 50 years can find yourself in, in an environment from a strict doctrinal position that would have been against the doctrinal position, at least of the denomination that you were a part of for so long, that you could sit here and go, and I'm in. This is called unity. This is what I believe in one part the church has been missing for decades 
And so you begin to ask yourself the question, that thought experiment that I gave earlier between the two different churches, which one is more spirit-filled? There's a couple different answers. But what if one of the answers is, well, both. But what if another way to look at it is this? What if those two churches, what if those two ideas, what if those two full expressions of all of the gifts of the Spirit came together? What then might God do? In all its proper order, in all the ways that align with the Scriptures, what if God was taking two sides or two parts of his body and he was now saying, I want to bring these together. Because when I bring them together, there's an even greater power. There's something even more he can do. Because I can tell you, there is going to be a moment in your life, cessationist, when you're going to look around and want prayer and you're going to go find a continuationist to do it for you. And I can tell you, continuationist, there's going to be a moment when you're going to hear something crazy and you're going to go, wait, that's not right. And a cessationist is going to open up the scripture and go, hold on, let's temper ourselves. Or better yet, continuationist, there's going to be a moment when you're going to walk in probably on a Sunday morning and you might have a friend with you who doesn't go to church and they're going to sit through an entire service and go, man, I love this and I want to come back. And you're going to go, gosh, thank you, cessationist. And I think, and I guess I'm submitting that if we, if we can venture down this lane together in unity, submitting to the Holy Spirit, submitting to one another, expressing ourselves in love, uh, serving one another as all of the statements on the gifts said, that perhaps what we can see is God take what has been the two sides of his church for so long and bring them together. And I think that could be very, very powerful. The full expression of his spirit in one body. Let's pray. Father, goodness, can I just say we are so grateful that you are smarter than we are. You know the desire of our heart to walk in unity and to walk in full power. To never Never abuse anything, not a person or a doctrine. To not grieve the Holy Spirit and not to abuse it. We need your help, Father. And we are also anticipatory, anxious, expectant, excited to see how you might use the coming together of your church. And Lord, I know, I know this is not something you're just doing here. This is something you're doing all over. And Father, I pray also that we would remember the enemy is not our brother and sister in Christ who disagrees on a doctrine like this. Our enemy is the enemy who right now is having a field day 
in our country. Distorting the minds of children, leading people who have been long in the faith away from solid doctrine, continuing lies and allowing them to become mainstream. And Father, I believe it is the power of your full church and the full utilization of the spectrum of your gifts that can put a stop to that. And so equip, empower, and unify us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.